And I actually, I'm not a religious person, but I almost had this just blind faith that it was going to rain. And logic tells you it's going to, but when you're in the middle of that drought, it, it feels like it's never going to rain again. Um, but I just, you know, I remember just driving around thinking, no, it's going to rain and we'll still be here when it does. G'day and welcome to episode 76 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and today I'm excited, extra excited, because this one is actually done in person. Before we kick off into today's episode, I'd like to pay my respects to the Kamilaroi people on the lands on which I meet today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and I extend those respects to the lands wherever you are listening to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. This week, the podcast has been sponsored by LAWD, the Specialists in Agribusiness Valuations and Transactions. You can find out more by heading to their website, lawd.com.au. Well, welcome back. And if you can't tell, this chat was awesome for a number of reasons. One, I've been trying to get hold of Sam Hegney for a little while, and his background was one which kind of aligns and, and is similar to mine in some respects so while i was up in northern new south wales recently i scooted over to near mungandai where sam's property is south banaba agriculture and we sat down and had a bit of a yarn just ahead of harvest this year of his background what brought him into agriculture and just his career which i actually was really fascinated i, I knew that he was a melbourne boy that had come into agriculture but i didn't realize that he didn't actually jump into his current role and head back to his wife's family property near Mungandai there until he was about 31 and so he's been back there for about 10 years now has seen the best of it the worst and I was just really fascinated with his approach and his energy and his real enthusiasm in promoting not just their business as a incredible place to work but just Australian agriculture so I won't harp on too much more enjoy the chat I'd love to start off just by, uh, yeah, if, if you could tell us a little bit more about kind of the Mungandai area, but also your, your property here at South Banaba. Uh, yep, so we're sitting here at the moment at South Banaba, which um, I'm the, the general manager of, um, South Banaba Agriculture. We're at Mungandai, which is on the New South Wales-Queensland border. I always say it's where the um, the New South Wales-Queensland border goes from straight line to squiggly, or squiggly to straight, because we're right on the, the junction there. So give everyone an idea of where we are. Um, and it's my wife's family farm. They've been here a bit over 100 years. Uh, my wife and I have been back here for uh, about 10 years. So we um, grow dry land and irrigated crops and graze beef cattle as well. Tell me, Mungandai is just over the Queensland border, is it? Or is well, it it's still both. It's on both sides. How, how's yeah. that been this year of all years with the yeah the lockdowns and, and border uh, restrictions? You could use a lot of words and I'll probably just stick with frustrating, I reckon. <laughs> it's probably the, the most PC one I could use. Um, yeah, very frustrating, um, especially in the last few months this year when we actually had our hospital essentially closed. The hospital sits on the Queensland side of the border by probably 20 metres. Um, and they closed it to New South Wales residents for a short period there, um, which, yeah, really threw the cat amongst the pigeons, and they wouldn't let New South Wales 
staff come and work in the hospital and that took away most of the staff and then they had to move the aged care residents out and all sorts of things. It was um, a mess is, again, the word I'd use where I could use other words, but a mess would be the one. So, yeah, the last two years have been quite difficult. Far out. That's um, – because I think, well, healthcare in the bush is one thing, but then Mm. you also look at teachers coming from – the New South Wales side and... Yeah, yeah, well, that was the other thing too with schools. Um, uh, gee, I can't remember which way it went now, but teachers weren't allowed to cross the borders and, yeah, it was all extremely difficult. Wow. Well, I want to uh, talk about a place where you're a long way from the last few years and I'm probably very thankful. But your story actually began down in Melbourne. So where did... I, I guess, yeah, can you just tell us a little bit more about your childhood and... Then I think we can jump into it, how agriculture came into the picture. Yep, fair enough. Uh, yeah, well, I, I grew up a long way from Mungandai. I grew up in Melbourne, or on the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, my parents have got a little 15-acre place at Digger's Rest. Um, my mum's got a few horses. Um, so I grew up there, went to school in Essendon, um, long way from a mixed farm at Mungandai. <laughs> um, but... Through uh, family, I always had an interest in, in farming, so I had an auntie and uncle on a property in the southeast of South Australia, and I spent every school holidays I possibly could over there helping them, um, doing sheep work and running around the farm, so that's probably where my love of farming really started, um, and we were lucky enough to have a few um, family friends on properties as well, and even a good family friend who I used to spend a lot of time with um, has a farm thousand acres stone's throw from the melbourne airport it's quite unique um so they were sort of 15 minutes away and i used to go and, and help out there whenever i could on, on weekends and things as well so grew a passion for agriculture from a very early age yeah wow it's interesting you've reminded me as you're talking about mung and die there i actually had a couple of mates when i was at school who came up sydney fellas and and came up and visited her family up here the Phelpses and I remember them coming back and they were like it took 45 minutes to get from his front gate to his to his house I'm not sure if they were walking might have been a slight <laughs> exaggeration but I believed it until I until I'd come here <laughs> <laughs> yeah they might have been on push bikes mate <laughs> yeah. the other question I've got for you footy growing up in Melbourne yeah what's footy to you these days uh, it's all AFL and I just I, I really struggle to relate to everyone around here because <laughs> I've got, got not much interest in league at all so no still uh, still AFL that's one thing you can't change yeah so going through school in Melbourne obviously your parents were pretty supportive of the the ag idea yeah did, was yeah, it definitely. was it always going to be the path kind of post school was it did you seek help from careers advisors um, yeah, it, it was always oh, like I was, I was probably annoyingly into ag. I'd say for my parents, um, yeah, it's just I'd lived and breathed it. Mum always said if I um, read my school books as much as I read the Weekly Times, I'd be a straight A student. You know, read the <laughs> Weekly Times from cover to cover every week. Um, so yeah, it was definitely what I think I was always going to do. I, I think maybe the only other thing I might have considered would be some kind of outdoors um you know school counselor like school camp sort of thing or something like that it was going to be outside anyway that's for sure um and yeah mum and dad were always extremely supportive um as i said they'd ferry me backwards and forwards to south australia on school holidays so i could go and do what i want to do and work with sheep and work on the farm um but i I do clearly remember uh about year nine i suppose when we Everyone at school went and had a little meeting with a careers counsellor and and um, everyone else wanted to be 
dentists and chiropractors and all sorts of normal things that kids at school in Essendon want to be. And I turned up and wanted to be a farmer or be in agriculture and various different ideas and the, the careers counsellor didn't know what to do with me. She had no idea. She, she just really said, oh, I can't really help you. <laughs> I don't know how to get you on that path. So, yeah, I, uh, I found my way through, though. Where did, where did that path start for you? Um, oh, well, after school, I um, finished year 12 and pretty much lived my dream where I got a ute and a dog and away I went jackarooing. Um, it's probably what I'd wanted to do since I'd... Since I was 10 or even knew that it was such a thing. Um, so I headed off to Queensland. Funnily enough, probably only a couple hundred k's away from where I am now. So I um, uh, went to Dirrambandi and Jackarooed on a place there and then went off to Ag College and have worked in Ag ever since. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank. And I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. What are some of those roles? Because I think I'm the same as you. Went off jackarooing and you kind of chase the dream. It's pretty fun. You pay not a lot, but it's <laughs> you've got no costs and... I think like you ended up I think with eight dogs in my first year out of school. I think <laughs> basically hoarded them. <laughs> Those different roles as you started to look, was it always inside the farm gate or did you want to kind of explore what else there was in the industry? No, it was definitely, well, it wasn't inside the farm gate at all for for quite a while. Um, just going back to that, that Jack Rewing, like <laughs> I, I remember I think first, Oh, yeah, first six months, I think I cleared $630 a month was, was the jackaroo wages. Um, but at the same time, I never really wanted for much, so uh, it was pretty cruisy existence. Um, but, yeah, after ag college, I actually worked um, as a grain trader and in various grain trading roles for a while. Um, managed a stock feed mill down in Victoria. Um, and that took me all around the country. And I think what I loved most about that was that it put me in front of so many farmers. Like I worked over in WA for a couple of years um, and also had a, a national role where I got to go and talk to farmers all around the country. And a bit like yourself, you know, that was just great, getting exposed to people in different regions. And um, I actually reckon there probably isn't a, a wheat-growing town in Australia that I haven't gone and presented to a group of farmers at. Um, so it was just great to see all aspects and different regions of farming across the country. As a kid from the city, when you came into ag, did you, did you battle imposter syndrome and that feeling of trying to prove yourself or that you weren't a farmer's son, so were you part of the industry? Or How did it go? A thousand percent I did, yep. <laughs> and, and I don't know if it finishes when you're a kid. Um, I still have it. I still still think, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, definitely. Um, in saying that... As I have grown up um, or got older and, and more experienced, I actually almost wear that kid from Melbourne tag with, as a badge of honour um, 
couple of reasons. It's sort of just it is who I am, but it also shows that I've come in and got myself to here um, just through my own work. Um, and also just to show other kids from Melbourne that you can come and be a farmer if you want to. You can come and work in agriculture. Absolutely. No, I, I think I've only just started to probably embrace it in the last little while. I think for a long time it was it was kind of that thing where you when people ask where you're from and you think, oh, God, what, what do I say here? <laughs> oh, I clearly remember turning up to Ag College and people asked where, where I was from and I'd say Deer and Bandy. But I was from bloody Digger's Rest. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I didn't want to say that, did I? Um, but, yeah, it's certainly as you, uh, as you grow up that changes a bit. Was there a moment you reckon that you actually, where when was the moment that you started to embrace the the boy from Melbourne? Um, it's probably been in the last ten years since I've been here. I reckon um, since we've probably put down roots a bit. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll quite happily say that's where I'm from and tell my story how I got to be here. It's, it's pretty cool because I think there's there's probably more of us than people realise. Yeah. Yep, no, I'd agree, definitely. Um, and all through agriculture, working in all sorts of parts of it. So, no, it's uh, it's something to be embraced and encouraged, I reckon. Absolutely. So I, I want to ask about coming and joining South Banaba and, and stepping from kind of a, yeah, I guess a, a grower role and and a, probably more of a corporate job, yep. coming into the farming business. How intimidating was it? Um, oh, it wasn't too bad. So I had worked, I'd worked on a farm in America, I'd, Spent a couple of years as an assistant manager on a farm in Australia, so I had physical experience with farming as well as that off-farm corporate role. Um, and yeah, you know, when Annette and I came back here, we both worked as farm hands. Um, there wasn't too much expected of us other than just to get in and work. Um, so no, I didn't find it too daunting. I found it actually just so exciting. Like we we both loved it. We used to. I was learning so much. Um, we'd come home and talk about our days and what we'd learnt and what we'd done. And, yeah, it was just a really exciting time, really, when we first started here. Were you both in the paddock every day? Yeah, yeah, we were. So I was working on the dry land and Annette was working on the irrigation. And yeah, So we're, the, the team here, we've, we've got two main enterprises, dry land and irrigation farming, and they're, they're two separate enterprises and, and separate staff. Um, so we were working together, uh, but without being together every day. So it's probably good for a harmonious relationship, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> and is there, a, is there a pecking order? Maybe just in case your workers listen, it maybe everyone's equal. But <laughs> was there was there a pecking order that you yeah a little, with responsibility that comes? Uh, oh, I mean, well, there is just you know through a hierarchy in the business, but we we were definitely down the bottom at the start. We were farm hands, just like the other farm hands. So didn't didn't really make too much difference. As you guys moved through, was there was it the responsibility kind of drip fed to you, or was it yeah yeah it was just through and then we, in the last ten years we've been through succession planning um, on the farm, so um, three of us actually came back at the same time. So my wife, um, myself, and my wife's sister, my sister in law, mm-hmm. um, and they've got a, a brother who at the time was living in America, um, but yeah, the three of us came and started working on the farm at the same time. Um, and all just started off in, in non-management type roles um, and then succession planning all happened and there's that whole chestnut for everyone in agriculture and every family business, I suppose. Um, but we worked through that and it was a big thing to work through and it, it's, it never stops, it's always evolving, but we've transitioned all of that management and ownership of the farm through the next generation. 
Um, so, yeah, it, it gradually evolved to where we're up to now. Yeah. So, sounds like your wife's family, like parents, were pretty forward-thinking in terms of the approach and, and it wasn't just a, oh, yeah, come in. And it, it sounds like there was a, a bit of method behind it all. Yeah, oh, look, there definitely was. And, and um, the Longworth kids have been having succession planning meetings since they were 16 as well. Um, um, you know, they, that's when they remember having their first ones when they were still at school um, to just lay the foundations of what, what might happen and people's ideas change and, as, as we've discussed, a lot of people, um, kids off farms turn 18 they can't get far enough away from the farm and then time goes by and they start to think, eh, actually, that was probably pretty good. I reckon I wouldn't mind having a go at that. And then maybe in their late 20s or 30s they come back to the farm. Um, so... With succession planning, things change, but it's just so important to have those conversations and make sure everyone knows what everyone else is thinking. Absolutely. I think otherwise it it becomes the elephant in the room and, God, it can, can turn ugly. Absolutely. And and just on that topic, like I just think it's so important to get external help and that's what, what we did, what the Longworths did. Um, We've got to facilitate it to make sure it all happens because otherwise everyone, it is the elephant in the room, everyone sits around the table and looks at the desk and they don't want to say anything and they don't want to upset anyone or they go the other way and they just really let fly and upset everyone. So it's really good to have a facilitator. I think it's just got to happen. Even if you do have good relationships and you think you've got open communication, I reckon you just can't go wrong getting someone else involved. Yeah, for sure. A professional as well, someone that's what they do, you know, because they, they've, they've had that conversation a thousand times and, and they know how to make it happen. Absolutely. I think I'm going to come, I'm going to ask about mentors in a second. Just out of interest, what age were you when you decided to come back and, and be a farmhand? Uh, 30, must have been 31. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. Because d- did you ever foresee, yeah, I, I guess that, that step back into into farming, did you ever see it as a step back or was it kind of a lateral step? Uh, no, it was definitely a step back. So I had a, a really good role um, in the grain industry um, and, yeah, it was. I, mean, I left that to I had a, a national role with a company and I was spending – I spent most of my life – my wife and I had similar sort of jobs where we um, were on planes all the time and – we actually cross paths in Qantas lounges every now and then. Um, <laughs> and I, we were living in Wagga at the time and I was sharing a house with a mate and my mate worked out that I'd spent more nights away than at home and it would have been cheaper for me to actually just rent a hotel, get a hotel room when I was in Wagga <laughs> instead <laughs> of rent, renting this house. Um, so, yeah, we went from that to you know, being a farmhand. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say it was a step back, but... Um, it's what we both wanted to do and there was probably a bigger picture in there as well. Well, there definitely was a bigger picture in there. What role, and this flows off the back of the talking about succession planning and kind of external people who have done things before, did did mentors have when it came to... Probably just around your career generally and then at at that decision point where it was a big step back. Yep, Um, yeah, mentors is a tough one. Like you sort of, there's probably informal mentors. I um, don't know that I've ever had many formal mentors, but there's just people you know and work with. And agriculture is such a small place, you know, so many people, and even just people you don't know that you're watching from afar, and you just like seeing what they do. Um, I reckon that does shape you, and you may not even be that conscious of it, but it definitely is. You see other people being successful in various ways, and try to emulate that as much as you can. Is there, 
maybe up to you if you name names or not, was there a quality or something that you saw that you really wanted to emulate yourself maybe more consciously? Yeah, definitely. And uh, I always say you, you learn as much. So just thinking bosses, you know, obviously you, you're um, shaped a lot by the people you work for. And I always say I've learned as much from my bad bosses as my good ones because you see what you don't want to do mm. and what you don't want to be. Um, and that can shape what you want to be um, very strongly. So, yeah, it goes both ways. You see really good qualities in people and that you work for and work with and you try to emulate that and vice versa, things you really don't want to be. It's, it's very true. And I think, well, Dad actually gave me some really good advice a few years ago and it was around, I think I, when, I, when I came out of uni, it was that I was chasing that dream job. I think probably like a lot yep. of people you yep. think, that's what's You're ready there. to take on the world. And you, yep. Yeah, and then a couple of learnings and a couple of different situations I got myself in and ended up kind of traversing jobs. And Dad just said, stop stop necessarily just trying to find what you want. Actually really yep. take note of what it is that you don't want. And I think yeah, in whether it's, yeah, people's skills or even just kind of roles and jobs, it's... Yep, yep. And on that jobs and careers thing, I, I'm sure you've seen it too, Ollie, but so many people I know study for years, get their degree and whatever they decided to, they wanted to do four years before that, and they get out the other end, they go, actually, I don't really want to do this. So they do it for a couple of years and they change their minds and they take a complete tangent and change their minds. So, yeah, you, you don't have to lock yourself into anything. No, someone I really should remember on the podcast a while ago said, now in your 20s it's time to try a bunch of mm. different things and then in yep. your 30s it's just really time to then start building your career. Yep, yep. So I'm very fair. conscious that I've got another year. So <laughs> <laughs> It's next year you've got to make a decision <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> so I'm still holding on to that. <laughs> very good. Off the back of that as well was people were saying that the age you actually came into the pandemic and lockdowns is the age you still are when it ends. So wow, I haven't have heard a, that one. Right. No, might have good. a few extra years. Okay, <laughs> that's good to know. I'm, I'm still in the 30s, beauty. Yeah. <laughs> in, I want to now, yeah, within the business, you guys have 10 full-time staff. It jumps this time of year around harvest to be closer to 20. Before we talk about probably the roles and dynamics of it, what type of manager, we've talked yeah, about the, the people and the skills maybe that you've had, what kind of manager and, and person do you want to be as a general manager of South Barnabra Ag? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I just want to be a good manager. What that means, I really don't know. Um, what sort of manager I am, you'd probably have to ask other people. Um, but uh, I really like trying to... Yeah, I was saying to someone the other day, you've got to know when to give people enough rope. Um, let people show what they can do, make mistakes, and give them enough rope to make a mistake that isn't catastrophic. Um, but that's the only way they'll learn. Um, we, we have a really big philosophy here that I really try and drive and that's making sure that um, anyone who works here gains more skills and when they choose to leave, they're going on to something bigger and better. Um, and we have you know, annual performance reviews with staff and common question asked is, right, where are you going to be in five years? What do you want to be? And it doesn't have to be here. There's no wrong answers to this. You know, where do you want to be so that we can help get you there? Um, <laughs> and so that's something I'm really big on is just making sure people progress their careers um, and get where they want to be. It's a selfless kind of approach to business, isn't it, where you're actually training people to leave? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. it probably is, but um, 
It's not really because then we'll get the right people in the door. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm actually probably looking after myself there, making sure we get some good people. Look, they're going to leave anyway. Um, yep. You know, I've, I've got no ambitions of making people stay until they retire. Um, some people will retire. Pe- people have retired off this farm. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you get the right people in the door where you've got happy staff and, and if they leave to do something else that's better, that's great. And then you replace them with someone else who's got a great attitude and they want to go places and... That'll be a really good part of the team too. How, how involved with you? Because during harvest, you've got a team of close to eighteen to twenty, kind of directly. How closely do you work with all of those people? Um, oh, pretty. Like I'll, I'll um, so we we have um, a, a dry land manager and a irrigation manager, and they both report to me. Um, so any direct instructions for those staff come from the irrigation manager or the dryland manager. I'm very careful not to undercut people and step on toes. Uh, but in saying that, you know, I know all the staff and I'm constantly in touch with them and, and try to maintain contact as much as I can. Um, and then you get flat out and harvest and uh, we get short and busy and one minute I'm driving a truck and the next I'm working at the silos and so I'm there working with them all every day too. So, yeah, definitely um, have a lot of involvement with everyone. I was going to ask that question. What? When it comes to the busy times, what's what's your role and, and do you just kind of fall back into being that loose man? Absolutely. I am 100% the, the loose rover. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, thinking back to last harvest, it'd be fixing an auger or driving a truck or um, chase a bin or whatever, whatever I need to do, um, to selling the grain, marketing, hiring and firing, all those sorts of things. So wherever I need to be, basically. Mm-hmm. What, what, what would a day look like for you kind of how does it how does it start off for someone who's managing a fairly decent farming operation which is dry land and summer and maybe what listeners who aren't involved in kind of the irrigated scene is you guys are planting while you're harvesting your winter crops it's there's a lot happening yeah yeah so i mean it varies oh no two days are the same and that's what i love about farming and and common feedback from all our staff is that there's variety and while you might be sitting on a tractor planting flat out for three weeks, then you move on to something else. Um, and outside of those busy times, no two days are the same. Um, but a lot of my job is HR and recruitment um, and getting getting staff in the door and getting the, the right staff. Um, and then it's, you know, driving a grader. It's whatever needs to be done. Um, yeah. I, I say to our managers, you know, I... I have the my job is to make sure they've got the tools to do their job so that's machinery and people um and then outside of that i can fall into labor gaps if they're short staffed for some reason and they need a job done one day i can jump in and do that how do you guys go finding staff like because in terms of i've I've heard you speak before about mungandai and you say i think it was halfway to nowhere maybe you kind of Uh, where you can, <laughs> it's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from here. <laughs> <laughs> which which side are we looking? Are we going east or west? <laughs> that's it. No, that's right. It's sort of it. It is tricky because um, uh, we're not um, you know, in the the green rolling hills where there's a forty thousand people town ten minutes away, um, but we're also not in the outback, you know, ringer sort of stuff. Um, so we're a bit bit in between. So we're not attracting those school leavers who want to go and be a ringer for a year, um, but we also find it very difficult to attract families 
for education and healthcare and other opportunities. Uh, so, it, look, it is challenging, um, and we look outside the square. Um, we are a bit like I was talking about making sure people are learning and improving their skills. We're really open to taking on staff that have no experience and no skills whatsoever. And at the moment on the farm, we've got two middle-aged blokes that have both come to us separately um, and they're tree changers. They've come from the city. Um, one's sort of got a more earth-moving background, the other one's financial services. And in the last 12 months, they've up and left the city and had enough of it and they're out here working on the farm and loving it. So I'll happily take those people on. If they've got a good attitude, handful of skills that they can adapt to the farm, well, that's brilliant. That's, that's what we'll take. So job advertisement for South Banaba. What does your ide- ideal... Uh, yeah, ideal staff member look like? Ah, uh, well, you, I really couldn't say because we'll take people who have, well, sorry, they, they won't have an exact background or experience, but they're willing to have a go, they've got a good attitude and they want to be part of a team and that welcome aboard, you know, that's it. We'll, we'll mould everything else. We always say we'll hire on attitude and train skills. And how do you guys approach in bringing those people on the journey of, where the family kind of farming business is going and, and where you guys are heading and, and the individual roles people play. Yeah, it, it's it's a challenging one and something I always um, struggle with just for time is making sure that everyone feels involved in what we're trying to achieve as a whole business. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you've got 10 people running around and we're all busy doing our own thing, um, it's, it is challenging to try and convey what the bigger picture is and what we're trying to achieve. So I try to, but, um, yeah, it's just makes it difficult but that's definitely a focus in trying to make sure that everyone knows they're part of a bigger picture and what that bigger picture is instead of just coming to work and being told to drive that tractor make sure they understand why they're driving that tractor and why we're doing that operation and what how it fits into the whole farm and what we're trying to do so you you've opened yourself up to this one what <laughs> what is the bigger picture for you guys where, where do you want to see this farming business go oh look it's that's maintaining you know, the the legacy, I suppose, that is the Longworths family farm. As I said, they've been here 100 years. It'd be great to be here another 100 years. Um, and that's through sustainable production, um, being innovative in what we grow. Um, the family has a long tradition of being innovative, whether that was growing chickpeas, being amongst the first in the district to grow chickpeas like we can see out the window here, or that first irrigated cotton crop that happened in 1982, um, continuing those sorts of things. Um, and with any luck, um, someone in the family continuing it on. I think on the topic of innovation, yeah, we can class it as innovation, is, is your approach and, and definitely championing the, the bigger picture, which is Australian agriculture. And, and you're pretty out, out there in terms of putting yourself... In a fun way, but also <laughs> fairly educational, um, and putting yourself kind of out there to the world. Has it was was that just boredom? What what's has sparked some of those videos? Yeah, yeah, a bit of all of the above. Boredom um, uh, and a passion for spreading the good word of agriculture, really. Um, and maybe that comes because I don't come directly from an agricultural background. And so maybe I appreciate what we do as an industry a little bit more than, than people who've been here forever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just 
really want to try and help bridge that urban country divide. Um, don't know if I'm doing much to achieve that, but every little bit helps. Um, and have a bit of fun along the way. And, yeah. And yeah, the fair bit of boredom. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on a tractor, coming up with ideas. Yeah. I'm definitely going to share the one. I think it was must have been last harvest, which I can't believe it's come around that quickly. <laughs> was you're out there in a, in a paddock of barley and you're referencing it in beers, which I actually think is ingenious because you're drawing in a consumer by a product they know, talking about yep. barley grains in a paddock, not necessarily. Or maybe it was wheat and it was uh, bread loaves or, or something similar. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Well, when, um, when the pandemic hit, seems like forever ago now, but whatever it was, March last year, um, uh, and... There were food shortages and people were fighting over toilet paper and, and the supermarket shelves were empty. Um, I put up a video, me sitting in a tractor, talking about what we as farmers would grow and I just used a, a paddock as an example and put it in consumer terms of how many loaves of bread we would grow off that paddock, how many cans of beer, how many cans of chickpeas. Um, and... It was sort of a few reasons for it. I, I genuinely wanted people to stop panic buying because it was just not a great thing for, for those that couldn't afford to panic buy. Um, and, and, and also just to show people that farmers have their back and we, we're going to keep growing food through a pandemic. And just to highlight that fact that food doesn't come from a supermarket shelf, it comes from a paddock from a farm like this. Um, so there was an opportunity there to, to try and show people that... Um, Farmers would keep growing food for them. Um, and the other side of that was, and one of the reasons I think it, it was sort of popular is that I put it in those terms that people understood because we suffer so much in agriculture from talking ag speak. Mm-hmm. Where I'll talk about hectare, tons of the hectare of those chickpeas out there and that doesn't mean anything to someone from the city. But if you put it in cans of chickpeas or cans of beer, mm-hmm. they sort of get an idea. And, and, and we do that a lot with everything we talk about um, in ag because we're so into it and we do it every day um the average consumer just doesn't it floats straight over the head that i understand mm. no, I, I like it maybe at the end of this harvest you could report back to us on how many cans of beer you guys have. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair few stubbies yep with any luck with any luck we'll have a heap of stubbies i just want to jump slightly back and 2019 so we were chatting before we started recording and it was yeah, 2019, the middle of the drought, you guys didn't really have much of your operation um, sown down or, or able to harvest it. When when those hard times come, what kind of keeps you moving forward? What's what's driving you? I suppose it's the same things. We still want to be sustainable. We want to be here the next year. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine now when you look out the window. But two years ago, you know, we harvested maybe 200 tonnes of grain. Um, off the whole place we had no irrigation we hadn't had any irrigation for years we were completely destocked there wasn't a blade of grass um, there were dust storms every other day it was pretty tough um, and I actually I, I'm not a religious person but I almost had this just blind faith that it was going to rain and logic tells you it's going to but when you're in the middle of that drought it, it feels like it's never going to rain again um, but I just you know I remember just driving around thinking, no, it's going to rain and we'll still be here when it does and just we've just got to you know, battle away until it does. Um, and, yeah, it was the closest I've been to that religious blind faith where it, it's going to be all right. It'll rain one day. As long as we're here when it does and we're ready, we'll, we'll be right too. 
Tell me what it was like in the community and the workplace and amongst your mates when that drought finally broke. And oh, it was just instant. It was just instant the minute it started raining because you know, droughts get gradually worse and worse. And, and then for a period there in 2019, it just didn't rain like at all. <laughs> and then um, first rain might have only been 10 mils. I went and stood out in it and just stood there. Um, and it was just the most amazing thing ever. Um, and literally, you know, that day texting mates, how much did you get, how much rain? And it just lifted the community immediately and it's just sort of it's actually been onward and upward ever since. It's kept raining. It, it'll stop again one day. But it was instantaneous as soon as it started raining, the community felt better about life. I think it's a really nice way to tie in kind of the optimism and hope that comes from agriculture and kind of what you guys are doing here at South Banaba, particularly around sustainability and coming back to you championing agriculture and, and the opportunities and, and we need people to come into roles on farm, but particularly in around science and technology, educating people about what happens and, and the role agriculture plays in shaping the world. You, if you get the chance to head back to your, uh, your high school down there in, in Essendon, what would and talking to year ten students, what would be your advice to them about the opportunities in agriculture and why they should uh, look at a, a career in it? Yeah, I'd probably have different words than the careers counsellor I saw in year ten. Um, I just probably a few different levels. Um, there are so many wide ranging opportunities in agriculture. It's not just a farmer. Um, you, I always say you name it, whatever discipline you're interested in, you could apply it to agriculture, whether it's science or mechanics or engineering or anything, you, education, teaching. You know, If there's a job that you want to do, you can do it in agriculture. Um, and so for those Year 10 kids, I'd also say, and there's a huge vacancy. Like if, if, you, know, if you're, you want to be a doctor, well, you can be a doctor in a regional town and they'll be crying out for you and they'll be desperate for you to be there and they'll love you when you go there. Um and then the other side, what I'd say is, even if you're not particularly interested right now, just go and have a go at working on farm. Um, it's amazing what you'll learn. And even if you, you might go and do it for 12 months or six months or a month, um, you'll learn stuff there that you'll be able to apply to whatever career you do then go on to. Um, it's such, it'll be such a different experience. So for those kids sitting in Essendon at the moment, it would be so different. They'll learn so many different things that they won't get any other way. So jump in and just have a go and be amazed what you pick up. And you never know, you might want to stay in the industry and keep working. Well, thank you so much for tuning in again to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I hope you guys did enjoy that chat. I yeah, found it fascinating one just going out and having a look at that part of New South Wales which I haven't really spent a whole lot of time with in but also just Sam's approach his how he's managing his people how they're managing the business his views in where Australian agriculture is at and how we can really promote the industry as such an exciting place to be and bring in the talent that we really need to continue to progress and address some really big challenges which are coming up if you want to read Sam's story or check out any of the other people we're featuring on the podcast, head over to our website, humansofagriculture.com, and you can stay in the loop with everything that's happening. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll chat to you next week.